Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. This story begins with a TV show, though it might not seem like it has anything to do with TV. Uh, Dr. Stoddard. Oh, Dr. Aston, and I'm Dr. Quincy. How do you do? How do you do? Really, this is a story about medicine, illnesses, cures, and whether we've been making a lot of progress in the wrong direction. TV doesn't factor in much. Her ulcer was improving. I would stake my medical reputation on that. And you'd lose. Can I see her? Can I see the body? Of course. It's your handiwork. NBC aired the show Quincy from 1976 to 1983, and its main focus was a Los Angeles County medical examiner played by the Hollywood and Broadway actor Jack Klugman. Klugman became so identified with his character that in the early 1980s, he showed up in Congress to testify on behalf of something called the Orphan Drug Act. His brother had a rare type of cancer, and Klugman became a champion of the legislation. The show itself even included a plot line advocating for it. The bill ended up passing and getting signed by President Reagan, and that, at the time, seemed like an undoubtedly good thing. Lots of rare diseases weren't getting much attention from drug makers, and collectively, the millions of people who suffered from uncommon diseases and their families, well, they found themselves alone, facing chronic illness or death sentences. The Orphan Drug Act promised to change the innovation incentives amongst researchers, and it did. And Congress created special rewards and incentives, lowered the approval bar, meaning companies had to produce less evidence their treatments worked, and provided longer monopolies, meaning companies could make bigger profits for longer for rare disease drugs back in the 80s. Dr. Peter Bach is a pulmonologist and intensive care physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And he argues that the Orphan Drug Act may have changed the innovation incentives a little too effectively. The entire biopharmaceutical innovation engine has turned its attention to rare diseases. And that has come at the same time that it has neglected finding new treatments for common ones. Bach also serves as the director of Memorial Sloan Kettering's Center for Health Policy and Outcomes. Heart disease is still the number one killer in America, but in the last five years, if you look at what the FDA has approved, every year it's approved 40 or more new indications for orphan or rare diseases, and maybe it's had one or two, in some years, zero new drugs for heart disease or diabetes, the major causes of morbidity and mortality. Just to put some numbers to all of this, heart disease, as Bach said, is the top killer of Americans. More than 600,000 people die from it each year. A rare disease, one that an orphan drug might address, generally kills a few hundred, maybe a few thousand Americans a year. And the surge in scientific effort and money and talent that has increasingly gone into orphan drugs since that 1983 law is, Bach says, something that should get our attention. There's a limited amount of money, there's a limited amount of scientific focus, and there's a limited amount of talent. And yeah, at some level, if we say the biggest prizes are out there for the people who find a treatment for a genetic defect that affects 200 people, that draws away attention from diseases that are claiming tens of thousands of lives. 
if you look at the afflictions that are claiming tens of thousands of lives or hundreds of thousands of lives a year, they start, as I mentioned, with heart disease. Cancer is the second biggest killer of Americans, also causing about 600,000 deaths every year. And then, according to the Centers for Disease Control, this is the rest of the top 10 list. Accidents, chronic lower respiratory diseases, stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, the flu and pneumonia, issues related to inflammation of the kidneys, and suicide. And my concern here is we've reached a point, I think, where there's an enormous amount of daylight between the self-interest that drives pharmaceutical innovation and the public interest which it's intended to benefit. Bach says these are hard conversations to have, but not having them also won't make the problem go away. Take, for example, a drug called Zolgensma. It's a gene therapy for infants with lethal spinal muscular atrophy. It can be a lifesaver for kids who otherwise would not make it out of infancy. It was created by a company called Avaxis and then bought by the pharmaceutical giant Novartis. And if that were the end of the story, then Zolgensma would be like so many other drugs that most of us have never heard of, which treat afflictions that most of us know little or nothing about. But the story of Zolgensma got more complicated and started to raise larger questions. Zolgensma is spectacular. I am thrilled it will help what is really a handful of people with a terrible disease. And the hard question is, if we encourage Zolgensma, are we taking attention away from other problems that are harming way more than 100 people or a few hundred people, but instead tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands? I should say here that in 2019, Zolgensma, which treats a very rare condition, became one of the most expensive drugs in the world, priced at just over $2 million a dose. The idea is that it's a one-time treatment. It's not something that you have to stay on for a long time. But even so, spending north of $2 million on one treatment, that's a lot of money. Are we in a zero sum or are we at least in a situation where there are trade-offs and we need to pay attention to them? Could we be bumping up against the limits of our ability to innovate, of the FDA to approve drugs, of trials to get done, of the greatest talent to work on the various problems. Bach argues that all deaths have to count the same. So while strides have been made in dealing with forms of cancer, for example, successes that benefit him and his colleagues at Memorial Sloan Kettering, he notes that the huge spike in suicides and drug overdoses and alcohol-related deaths over the past few decades, they have simultaneously undermined our ability to keep our population healthy. But that may not be surprising. To go back for a minute to the Orphan Drug Act of 1983, we have seen nearly 40 years of incentives to develop drugs and health solutions for the few, not the many. And that, Bach says, may not be giving us the health system we want. Our healthcare environment is fragmented. Primary care doctors have less time to manage complex issues. We have widening income inequality and widening access inequality. And the logical response by pharmaceutical companies to those things 
is to focus on developing drugs where they can kind of have a boutique business model, like a luxury jeweler, only sell a few of their products for hundreds of thousands or millions through the most specialized doctors and to the patients who have the best insurance and still make a profit and give up on the widespread population level treatments that we used to focus on that underlie all the progress we did make in heart disease because that needs a functioning system. It needs people with good health insurance and doctors with real time to work with patients and tackle tough problems. The biggest solutions we lack for things like diabetes and heart disease today are socially mediated. They're not genetically mediated. And to really be a win for a pharmaceutical company, you need to tackle those problems and the incentives in the system aren't there. While you can create a gene therapy for a few hundred people a year, charge millions for it, and have that be something that drives up your stock price. Here, here's my question. When, it, when you come back to the science of this and think about, um, okay, you know, a gene therapy or, a, you know, uh, zeroing in on a particular gene that controls a particular rare disease and figuring, oh, okay, we've got it. We figured out what it is. If we can figure out how to fix it, then we can help these, th this group of people, even though that group of people might be small. That seems like a much more sort of clear and defined problem than... Um, you know, uh, people dying of uh, diabetes and heart disease. I mean, there's there's many, many factors that go into why that might happen, many lifestyle factors. Is that really something that people um, in a lab in a pharmaceutical uh, you know company somewhere can really address? Yeah, so th that's fair, except, when Avexis tried to come up with a gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy, no one had ever done it before. You look at the rising deaths from opiates and depression, or you look at the 10-year gap in life expectancy between people who live within a few blocks of where I'm sitting right now in midtown Manhattan and people who live up in the Bronx. Hmm. And those differences, opiate deaths are up eightfold in the last 15 years. These are problems we already had under control. The life expectancy gaps we see are proof that we can make people's lives better off because we have neighborhoods where those lives are better off. Opiate addiction and death was a low-level endemic until we collectively turned it into a catastrophic epidemic that claims more lives than either prostate cancer or breast cancer. So the difference here is we had those problems under control. It's not that we needed necessarily some new innovation that has to be created in a lab to get there, but we are turning our energy towards solving the new problems. And I'm not a fan of military metaphors. But we're advancing on one frontier and doing nothing to protect our flanks on these social frontiers. Yes, except if you're Merck or you're Pfizer or you're Novartis or, you know, and you're, and you're like in the business of developing new drugs, 
I'm not sure, even though what you say about the opioid epidemic and, you know, deaths of despair uh, when you combine uh, drug overdoses and suicide and um, alcohol-related is something like 150,000 deaths a year. I mean, these are huge numbers. But I'm not sure what a pharmaceutical company does about that. Isn't that more of like a government problem? I mean, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Set me straight if I'm wrong. But if you're in the business of creating new drugs and making money for those drugs, how do you how do you address those deaths of despair? I didn't I didn't memorize the list of drug companies you just listed. Maybe you had Johnson and Johnson in there. I was just listing off a few that I could think of, you know, when they're probably trying to think, what should we develop next? Right. Well, but let's be clear. These are companies that were at the heart of the opiate crisis. Hmm. So. I don't think you can say they're not responsible when their own sales figures were telling them that they were the supply side of this massive public health epidemic. But the last thing is the pharmaceutical industry, full of intelligent people, is actively pushing Congress to restructure the incentives and rewards and hurdles they need to meet to get new drugs on the market. And they are the ones who are pushing for a structure that provides greater rewards for drugs that treat rare diseases and leaves aside the bigger problems. Hmm. And then they say, we are seeking innovation in the diseases that are incentivized. It's a circle. And so... Merck, of course, has a storied history in public health, in creating important new vaccines, including the one for HPV. These companies have a long history, Pfizer, of creating important drugs for diabetes, and most importantly in Pfizer's case, the statins that are the primary pharmaceutical that has reduced deaths from cardiovascular disease. This is new, and it has been self-reinforcing because the industry has said, these are the incentives we want, and then those are created, and then they can come on the market and charge $2 million for a drug that will only go to a few hundred people. Of course, then they will say, why take on the risk? Why have to do studies for decades? Why have to do two or three studies with tens of thousands of people that may not work out when we can get a drug approved for a few hundred people, have it also worth a billion dollars? never need to even do a comparison, never need to do a second study. You know, okay, so in in, in some ways you're talking about a market that's not working. I mean, it, it's not really like a market for anything else I buy uh, where I go out and I can see the prices. This is a, you know, if I'm in the hospital being treated for something, I don't get a lot of those bills. They're given to other people. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's much more complicated than just going out and buying a mattress or buying a television or the normal things that we're used to shopping for. Does that say to you at all, um, this is um, like inventiveness that should not be subject to the market? Like maybe there shouldn't be a market in drugs. Maybe this should be, I don't know, I don't know, run by the government. I mean, like, I don't know what you think. Yeah, no, that's fair. So I think the experiment we ran over the last 10 years has given us conclusively an answer. And the experiment we ran was let's have patients select their health care based on how much it costs. 
let's turn patients into activated buyers the same way they are in the aisles of a department store. Let's push more of the cost of drugs onto patients so that they'll stop and say, hey, isn't there a cheaper drug for me? Or, hey, maybe I don't really need this drug. I should go ask my doctor. And this is the result of that experiment. Patients stop taking drugs that could save their life. Hmm. They also stop taking drugs that are relatively unimportant. They can't get the information they need to make these decisions. Doctors don't have the tools in front of them to help them because a doctor like me, when I prescribe a drug, has no idea how much it's going to cost that patient when they go to the pharmacy counter. That experiment has now been run. We've watched people go into bankruptcy. We've watched people with leukemia and Medicare not get their drugs. We've watched serious consequences, almost all afflicting poorer people. And so maybe it's time to reconsider whether or not we want market forces to be used to modulate the price of drugs, which rise every year faster than any other index in medicine. And every other country figured this out a long time ago. It's scary for our Congress to think about it. But every other country simply sets prices based on how well drugs work. And that has worked to enable better access in every other Western country. It has worked to enable low out-of-pocket costs, the amount patients have to pay from their own wallet when they pick up their prescriptions. And there's no evidence that health outcomes are worse in these other countries. In fact, they generally are better. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Peter Bach, a physician. He's the director of Memorial Sloan Kettering Center for Health Policy and Outcomes. So, um, Peter, let me ask you a question about the role that government should play uh, when it comes to thinking about innovation, about creating new drugs. We talked about this, that the number of Americans who die from cancer every year, it's about 600,000. Fewer than 7,000, so about a hundredth, uh, die from ALS, which is actually one of the most common of of the rare diseases that researchers are trying to address. Would it be reasonable, do you think, for the U.S. government to say, look, about 100 people die from cancer for every one person that dies from ALS. We're going to create incentives that is you know, that, that will distribute our money accordingly. Uh, or is that just too cold hearted? Yeah. Any formula you lay out sounds like you're cold hearted. And I'm not going to endorse the formula you just elaborated, mm-hmm. but it's uh, the core concept is that whether you're relieving suffering from ALS by helping people to live longer or live a better quality of life, Mm -hmm. relieving suffering from diabetes with less disease complications, better mobility, better nutrition with weight loss and fitness, or less death from some rare cancer or longer life with it, the reward should be proportional to the magnitude of those benefits, irrespective of the mechanism, irrespective of the disease. That would create the strongest alignment between the pharmaceutical sector's efforts and the public's needs. And the conclusion I've arrived at, the strong sense I have at this point, is that there's just too much daylight between the interests of biomedical innovation 
and the public's interest in health. If you were um, in charge, if you were uh, called in by government officials and they said, what do you think the very best way to incentivize uh, new research and new breakthroughs in, let's say, cardiovascular disease? It's such a big killer of Americans. What is that? Is that like funding better labs at universities? Is that, you know, dealing with the pharmaceutical companies? What is the very best way to get our brightest minds doing the things that are killing, the mo- you know, like uh, addressing the things that kill the most Americans? What would you say? So... Can we? Do you have a couple more hours for this interview? Or uh, <laughs> um, well, the all right, summary, no, I should, the top line. I should, yeah, exactly. I should actually say, thank goodness they don't call me. But within the bounds of what we do in the U.S. with regard to policy and healthcare, the underlying principle is that we believe in markets. That if we create incentives over here, we will get the products of those incentives. And there is every reason to believe that in healthcare generally and in pharmaceutical innovation specifically, those incentives really, really work. They work to a frightening level, actually. Mm. It Mm. means we have to be ultra attentive to them. And so I think at a starting point, we need to create rewards that align with the interests of the public and with measures of public health success and health success generally that are at the level of society. And we're talking monetary rewards here, right? Basically, people need to make more money. uh, They have to be rewarded for the things you want them to do. Well, that's right. I mean, there's other kinds of very important rewards, too. But generally, when we talk about markets, we're talking about money. Mm -hmm. And it's arguable that If we created larger financial incentives for people who could develop ways to get people to eat better, particularly diabetic patients, provide better access to better food, I know that sounds pedestrian, but if the rewards were there, our market-based policy structure would conclude that this will lead to declines in morbidity and mortality from diabetes and hypertension. Let's go try that. In your in your own practice, are there any human stories that you can think of that kind of point to some of the uh, you know issues that we've been talking about, whether it's with price or with incentive structure or uh, that sort of thing? I just wonder how much you see this manifest in your own life, like you know, going about your day treating patients. Yeah. So, you know. It- I think the whole point of this kind of line of thinking is that we need to see the forest, not the trees. And so I'm dodging your question, or I'm questioning your question, because these deaths, the 70,000 deaths from opiates, which haven't declined at all, are invisible to all of us. Mm. Look, there's this young girl who was treated at UPenn with CAR-T therapy for an acute childhood leukemia that everybody talks about. Her name's Emily Whitehead. What is CAR-T therapy? There are these re-engineered immune cells called T cells that when re-engineered are trained to fight the person's cancer. Okay. And I am thrilled. Every once in a while, there's a story about what's going on in her life, and it's amazing and miraculous. And 
it would be hard-hearted to say that that benefit to her and her family and the other people who benefited from CAR-T isn't worth something. That would be Mm -hmm. absurd, Mm -hmm. quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. But the problem with focusing on stories of individuals is that old saw, one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. Mm -hmm. The 70,000 deaths from opiates this year, the 20,000 deaths from hospital-acquired staph infection, each of those is a people, too. Yeah. And I feel like you're saying those are maybe deaths that don't get a lot of attention. Like, they they happen, but they're maybe more under the radar than than certain other kinds of afflictions or people who have those afflictions. Well, for a bunch of reasons, right? One is, unless it's the death of a famous person, you know, the deaths are not great stories, right? There's no one to interview, for example. And they're also not great stories because... There's no gee whiz aspect. And don't get me wrong, these gee whiz aspects got me to go in medicine in the first place. Mm -hmm. And some of my friends at Sloan Kettering are responsible for them. Some of them, and they're incredible. But a re-engineered T cell put back into somebody that fights cancer, that's incredible. A person eating the wrong food for 20 years and dying prematurely from diabetes, you know, that's the real story of what's going on in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it isn't a gripping one. Peter Bach is the director of Memorial Sloan Kettering Center for Health Policy and Outcomes. He's also a pulmonologist and intensive care physician. Dr. Bach, thanks very much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kara. On our website, we've got more about some of the stories and the statistics that we've cited during this conversation, from the role that the TV show Quincy played in the Orphan Drug Act of 1983, to the numbers surrounding the diseases and afflictions most likely to take Americans' lives every year. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.